So we're going to come on to a Bible reading now, and uh, Hannah is going to read to us uh, something of the text from Daniel. Now, Daniel uh, in the Bible was someone who was involved in the exile, and we're going to hear the first part of Daniel chapter 1, read to us by Hannah. Daniel 1, 1-7 In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect. Handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of, of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that they were sent to the king's service. Among these were some from Judah, Daniel, Ananiah, Mishal, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names to Daniel, the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishal, Meshach, and we come to our talk this morning uh, about the exile. And this morning is by way of introduction. We'll be looking at uh, our series that's going to come over the next few weeks. And uh, hopefully you'll be able to journey with us as we look into some of the stories that surround the exile. And we're, we're thinking particularly of the exile of the people of Judah to Babylon, something that took place around about 600 BC. But actually, as we look through the Bible, we can see that theme of exile in different places. And right from the beginning of the Bible, we see Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And because of their sin, they were sent in exile out of the Garden of Eden. And that close, intimate relationship with God was set apart. We can also see the descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob living in Egypt for 400 years or so, exiled in a foreign land. And even in the New Testament, Peter writes to the exiles dispersed in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia. So that theme of exile runs right through scripture. Isn't it fascinating to think about the practicalities of, of shifting everything that you need to somewhere that's hundreds of miles away? We had a little thought about that earlier. What would be the priorities? What things would you take with you? We perhaps have constant reminders in refugees that uh, try to come to our country and other countries at the moment particularly from uh, war-torn lands or oppressive regimes, coming with just a small amount of belongings. Well, in our story of exile, we find that the people of Judah had been unfaithful and disobedient. And actually, maybe it shouldn't have come as too much of a surprise because there had been warnings going right back to the time of Moses. 
Already, God's kingdom had been split between the north and the south, and the northern kingdom had been attacked and exiled by the Assyrians. And we can read in Deuteronomy, where God speaks these words, the Lord will bring you and your king, whom he set over you, to a nation that neither you nor your fathers have known. And there you will serve other gods of wood and stone. And you will become a horror, a proverb, and a byword among all the peoples where the Lord will lead you away. And that would have been about 400 years before the actual event of the exile. And we see there God's patience holding out over those hundreds of years of disobedience and unfaithfulness. And in our exile, we see an invasion from Babylon. Now, Babylon was the dominant force in the region at the time. It was recognized as very advanced in its culture, its transport systems, canals, breathtaking buildings that it had. It was the most impressive city of its time. But it also represented immorality, worshipping false gods, a rejection of Israel's God. And the term Babylon is used right through the Bible to represent all that opposes Yahweh, the God of Israel. But it was also very clever in the way that it assimilated those other cultures that it defeated. We see that in the reading we heard from the opening of Daniel. Yes, very much it would use force to conquer, but we read, we read in Daniel that uh, it also wanted to make the most of people and use their skills for its own benefit. So Daniel, along with Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, were among the first group of exiles taken. And we read that they were looking for these young men without any physical defect and handsome and showing aptitude for learning. They wanted to use them in the king's palace. They would be fed well. Three years of complete training to enter into the king's service. Even had their names, names changed to Belteshazzar, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Babylonian names. Do you see what's happening there? All the traces of their culture were set to be removed. They were trying to get rid of all their reliance on the God of Israel and replace it with the culture and gods of Babylon, even to the extent of changing their names. A three-year total immersion into the culture. And at the end of it, they would be known as Babylonian. A few years after that first wave, uh, following a revolt back in Judah, a second larger wave of exiles were brought to Babylon. The temple in Jerusalem was sacked and destroyed. And a good proportion of Jewish people had to make that 500 or so mile journey all the way down to Babylon. How did they feel about it? Well, do you remember these people back from the late 1970s? Boney M, the rivers of Babylon. Well, 
they took those words from Psalm 137. By the rivers of Babylon, where we sat down, we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars we hung our harps, for there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? In the culture of the day, if your country was defeated, your God was thought to have been defeated as well. And the people of Jerusalem had their temple, their temple of God's presence. The priests would go there to make their offerings. People would come and visit the temple, the place where God was. Once a year, the high priest would go into the most holy place and offer atonement. But now, the temple was no more. That place that God inhabited was not there. And they were going to Babylon, where other gods held sway, where the culture was very different. How could they sing the Lord's song in this foreign land? How long would it go on for? They didn't know. Surely God would intervene at some point. Maybe it would only last a couple of years and they would come back. Indeed, that's what some false prophets were forecasting. We read in Jeremiah 28 that the prophet Hananiah said, This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. I will break the yoke of the king of Babylon. Within two years I will bring back to this place all the articles of the Lord's house that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, removed and took to Babylon. I will also bring back to this place Jehoiakim and all the other exiles from Judah who went to Babylon. For I will break the yoke of the king of Babylon. But that wasn't God's message. So we need to be careful about how we test things out that people who speak supposedly from God are saying. Test them out before we believe them. Jeremiah put the record straight. And this was the postcard, if you like, he sent to the exiles. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and daughters. Increase in numbers there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Wow, this wasn't going to be a quick fix, was it? But notice the tone of that prophecy from Jeremiah. Remember that the reason for the exile was that the people had been unfaithful and disobedient to God. 
But we see a message from God that seeks to address that, to shift them out of their comfort zones by a God who cares, who wants them still to prosper, who wants them to have his hope in the future, doesn't have that feeling of an angry retort, but a very controlled message to say, you're going to have to face the consequences, but I've still got you. And when the time is right, I'm going to restore things again. Those of you that are or have been parents, does that strike a chord? There are times maybe when you lose it because everything gets too much. But there are times when the discipline is very controlled and you want your children to know the right way, to get the message across by that controlled discipline. So how does the story of exile speak into our situation today? Well, there's a sense in which we could see the last year of, of COVID as a type of exile. Many of our practices have had to change. Our relationship with others has been done in a different way. We haven't been able to come together and worship God in person. So certainly we could draw a parallel with the exile in that sense. But there's something more than that. There's a real sense that as part of a Christian community, we are always exiles in a foreign land. Here's what Jesus said in John 15. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And so whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command, love each other. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world. But I have chosen you out of the world. Jesus is saying that once we're born again, our citizenship is not of this world, but we become citizens of the kingdom of God. And the culture of this world doesn't always fit easily around with the culture of following Jesus, of being one of his disciples. And we've seen that tension increasing over our lifetime. We now live in what many people are calling the post-Christian era. An era where Christian principles are no longer considered ones to look up to. A culture where Christian thought is being eroded away. Pastor and author John Tyson puts it this way. We've gone from being a majority to a minority. And if you look at any set of statistics about people attached to the Christian faith or of church attendance, you will see a big decline in the numbers. Statistics, of course, never show the level of commitment that people have. But levels of church attendance have dropped from 6.5 million back in 1980 to less than half of that, 3 million, by 2015. In 2016... A poll showed that only 28% of people believe in some kind of God or higher power. 
That's just some kind of God or higher power, not necessarily our God. 38% believed there was definitely no God. So Christianity has certainly gone from a majority, probably in the middle part of the 20th century or before, to being a minority. We've gone from the centre to the fringe in terms of policy making and cultural influence the, the uh, position of the Christian faith has moved incredibly it was encouraging wasn't it that Boris Johnson talked over Easter about Jesus being the way the truth and the life but overall in the corridors of power Christianity has no credible authority anymore We've gone from being respected to being disrespected. In the past, even if people didn't have a faith of their own, they would often look up to Christians and applaud them for their stance on certain issues. Let's say a couple that gets together decided to wait until marriage before they have a sexual relationship. In the past, while others may not have taken that stance, they might say, well, I really respect you for that. In our current culture, it will probably be classed as weird and people will be disrespected. Is there something wrong with you, they'd say? You can probably think of many other examples where we've gone from being respected to disrespected. There's something called the Overton window, which is a way of seeing how new ideas are accepted into modern culture starts with something being absolutely unthinkable. Then it becomes an idea that's radical. Then it becomes acceptable. And then sensible. And then popular. And before we know it, it becomes policy. Let's take an idea and look at that. The idea, perhaps, of not having prayers in school assemblies. And years ago, it would have been unthinkable in certain institutions, that that wouldn't happen. It's part and parcel of the culture and fabric of the school. And then somebody has an idea that, well, maybe it should happen less often. So the frequency is lessened. And other things creep in. And then over time, maybe the school governors recognise how sensible it would be because they've got children from other cultures and it might be offensive if they had Christian prayers. And other schools catch on, and it becomes a popular stance across education. And eventually, it becomes the policy of the school. They won't have Christian input. There are so many other examples that you could put into those categories, where something goes from being unthinkable over the course of time to become policy, become the norm, become the way of doing things. And sometimes it leads to those with a Christian viewpoint being disrespected and seemingly at odds with normality. So how would we describe the key characteristics of culture in the UK and the Western world in the 21st century? Once again, John Tyson has some thoughts about different categories we could look at. Media. Uh, media is pervasive. It pours story after story into our lives. 
And many of them are contradictory to the ways that Jesus would have. In most media, truth has been reduced to small sound bites. And things are sensationalised over what's really important. In many areas, truth is not easy to identify in our media. And we are fed what the media companies want us to hear. Marketing. One commentator suggested that we see more adverts in one year than somebody 50 years ago would see in their lifetime. It's like we've been branded. Companies have information about our preferences and put things before us that will just tick our boxes. We're drawn into a web of things that we're told we can't do without. And there's that sense of immediacy as well, having to have something now. We get Amazon Prime because we can get something the next day. We get uh, Deliveroo because we can get something. All these labour-saving things that we can have to save our time. But actually, we find ourselves with much less time than we would have want. And the smartphone as well. Um, statistics tell us that people touch their smartphones 2,000 odd times a day. That seems quite high, but you know what I mean there, that people are addicted to smartphones. Economics. We learn from an early age that more is better. And better is not enough. We need to keep going. We spend much of our lives trying to acquire things and experiences that make us feel good about ourselves. Success is defined by the word more. Sexuality. Culture tells us that sex is purely physical. And as long as nobody gets hurt, people can determine their own preferences in that area. Religion and truth. We're told that all the religions of the world are equal. And to claim that yours is the truth is cultural treason. The only conviction you can have is that there is nothing that is universally true for everyone. Self-image and identity. The idolatry of self becomes all important. I can choose my identity and the way that others see me. Nobody has the right to tell me any different and the way I choose is reality. Authority. Authority has been eroded across all society. People no longer have any confidence in the government, the law, institutions, and certainly not in any religious authority. <clears throat> what I think becomes the highest authority. So as Christians, what is our response to this pervading culture? Well, I'm going to suggest there are three possible ways we could respond. Number one, we could retreat into our own community and have very little to do with the outside world. We can become like an insular club, looking after each other's needs. We can look for Christian shops, Christian plumbers, 
Christian electricians to meet our needs. In fact, everything we do is related to the faith. And therefore, we're not influenced particularly by culture, but also we have very little influence in those outside the church. Number two, we can assimilate into the culture that we live. We're influenced by those that we meet day by day and the way of life that we have. And gradually we might compromise with something in that culture. And something of our relationship with Jesus slips. Think of those three years that the people of Judah uh, were immersed into the culture of Babylon, of Daniel and his friends. And as time went on and those people uh, began to come back to Judah, some decided, some families decided they were going to stay on. It was nicer for them. They'd got more involved in the culture. They didn't want to go back to their old way. Romans 12 verse 2 tells us, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Not conforming to the pattern of this world. So we could retreat into our own community. We could actually become assimilated and go more the way of culture. But there's a third way, whereby we have a positive impact on the culture around us. And we're gonna be calling it in this series, a creative minority, where we are ambassadors for Jesus in the world around us. Become, becoming a creative minority means maintaining those strong links with the outside world while remaining true to our faith, seeking not just to keep the flame burning, but to transform the larger society, society that we are part of. The church is called to participate in this, seeking neither to control or abandon the world, but to love it to new life through redemptive participation. As the people of God, we have the Holy Spirit within us. And as we go out, we seek to permeate into the culture around us. We seek to be distinctive. We seek to make a difference. We seek to follow kingdom values. Jesus calls us to be his disciples, his apprentices. Not just believing in facts that the Bible talks about, but following his way, obeying his commands and doing the things that he would do. Jesus talked in his Sermon on the Mount about being salt and light, bringing flavor and preservation to the world around us. If you're following the Bible in one year, uh, as many of us are, You'll have read from Luke chapter 14 this week. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor the manure pile. It's thrown out. 
What happens if we lose that saltiness, that uh, flavour and preservation in the world around us? Here's a quote from John Stott. He says this, If meat goes bad and becomes inedible, there is no sense in blaming the meat. That is what happens when bacteria are left alone to breed. The question to ask is, where is the salt? Just so, if society deteriorates and its standards decline, there's no sense in blaming society. The question to ask is, where is the church? Why are the salt and light of Jesus Christ not permeating and changing our society? It's sheer hypocrisy on our part to raise our eyebrows, shrug our shoulders, or wring our hands. The Lord Jesus told us to be the world's salt and light. Challenging words for us as church. Over these, week, over these weeks, we're going to be exploring some of the things that it means to be a creative minority in the world around us. We'll be looking at the example of Daniel and his friends as they sought to be a positive influence in the world of Babylon. If you continue to read from where Hannah finished in Daniel chapter 1, you'll see that Daniel sought to retain something of the nature of his faith by refusing the food that the king's table had offered him and trusting that God would honour him through it. And here, in 2021, God has given us the opportunity of a reset. To consider again what it means to be an apprentice of Jesus in the world around us. This applies to each of us as individuals, and it also applies to us as a group of Christians, Norwich Central Baptist Church. As individuals, we will mix from day to day with family, friends, neighbours and colleagues. So being a creative minority is not just the domain of Sundays and when we're being community together. It's in the home, in the street, in the gym, the shopping centre, school gate, the workplace. We can take Jesus into those places. And it's possible to have that connection with Jesus by his spirit in all the places that we travel through and with all the people that we meet. Giving thanks to him, asking for prompting, seeking wisdom right throughout the day. And if we have that close awareness of his presence, he will lead us and guide us and prompt us. Remember back to that reading, the exiles were told to pray for the prosperity of the city. If it prospers, you will prosper, was what Jeremiah said. We're called to pray into the situations that we find ourselves. The LICC, London Institute for Contemporary Culture, is a good organisation in thinking about how we as a church influence the community around us. And we'll pop in the newsletter, just a reminder of being able to tap into the LICC as support in that. 
But what about our influence as a church, as NCBC? How do we demonstrate Jesus to those around us? Once again, we've got that opportunity to reset, to consider what God is saying to us. How can we partner him in the areas that uh, he wants to move and work at this time? And just because we've had a certain ministry in the past from NCBC doesn't mean that that will be right for the next season in our church. And as members and the congregation of NCBC, you're going to have a key role in determining what God is saying about our ministries as a church. This week, there'll be a survey coming out asking you to prayerfully consider where your ministry should be as part of NCBC. It's a blank canvas at the moment. We're seeking God on it. Where do we move from here? We won't assume that because you've had a role before, you automatically want to have that role again. A chance to listen to God and respond to his direction, to see how we, as a family of believers together, can be a creative minority. A creative minority to those who come through our doors, but also those outside the church as well. What's God saying to us at this crucial time? How does he want us to be salt and light to the people of Norwich? How can we be a creative minority to those around us? Please join with us over the coming weeks as we continue to explore some of these themes connected with the people of exile. As people in the kingdom of God, who need, uh, with a world that desperately needs to know him at the moment. It's a book that I've found helpful uh, in this, and uh, I'm sure that the Norwich Resource Centre at Revelation could get you a copy, if you like. Uh, it's called Exiles on Mission by Paul S. Williams, and it takes us through a lot of these themes of uh, us being a creative minority in the world around us today. Let's pray together. Father God, we ask that you would speak to us over these coming days. Help us to prayerfully consider where we stand as individuals in the culture around us and where we stand as a church. How can we reach out to the world around us? Lord, would you guide us? Would you point us in the directions we want to partner with the work that you are doing help us to understand at this time in Jesus name Amen